Thanks, Blake. Good evening, everyone. I'm, it's a little bit of a taste of heaven to see my wife singing up here and my best friend sharing his testimony. I'm so thankful for what the Lord has done in Rhett's life. And uh, I come to you tonight, and I appreciate uh, Blake's introduction and serving in 1824 here, but really, there's just one thing that you need to know about me, maybe a few personally, but one thing that you need to know is that I am just a sinner saved by the grace of God, and I want to serve him with every ounce of my being for the rest of my life. And it is a joy for me, and I hope it is a joy for you to hear what I have for you tonight. I hope it is a blessing and an encouragement to you, maybe even half of what it was a blessing and encouragement to me in preparing it. And so I'm thankful that you're here tonight. Uh, I am a husband to Felicia, that was my wife, um, who is, um, I can't explain how the Lord has used her so mightily in my life. And I am a father of one. Uh, Her name is Eden. She's 13 months old and she is a gift from God. And even thinking this week about Eden, as I prepared this sermon, I I kept thinking of her. Eden loves toast, like like loves a lot, like loves toast. And ever since Eden was eating solid foods, she would not eat anything for breakfast until she had her piece of toast. And when you give Eden her toast— When she was crawling, she would crawl around like army crawling on her elbows to eat her toast while going. Now that she walks, she has her toast in hand, playing with a toy. Her toast is not far from her. You name it, Eden has her toast. And Felicia and I have tried to substitute out, like any good parent, her toast for something a little bit more healthy. We've tried oatmeal. We've tried some of the the sweetest Kingsburg fruit you can, you can get your hands on. We've even tried those store-bought puffs, but Eden holds tightly on to her toast, even if there is something better. And that reminds me of the life of mankind, that us as humans can hold on to something so tight, even if there is something that is better. And so tonight, we're going to see a miracle that Jesus performs as we walk through four scenes that point to the man behind the miracle so that we see the glory and the goodness of God. So open with me to Luke chapter 5, and we'll read our passage for the evening. Luke chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 1. Luke 5 verse 1. On one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out for a little from the land, and he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch." And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. 
And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. This is the word of the Lord. As we have another week focused on the miracles of Jesus, I want to point out to you, like Cassie did last week, what the point of a miracle is. The miracles that Jesus performed are purposed to prove his deity, that he was not just a man, but that he is God. And that is my sole desire for you tonight, that you see beyond the miracle into the man performing it. That you see beyond the the one moment that we will focus on and to the Messiah that it ultimately points to. And if you take away anything tonight, I desire it not to be, well, what can he offer me? Or how can I receive some earthly, temporal thing from Jesus? But I want you to see that he who performs the miracle of nature, like the one we will focus on tonight, can do the greatest miracle of all the supernatural regeneration of sinful and dead men. And so with that being said, let us focus on our first scene. Our first scene is the multitude. Luke chapter five, verse one says, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And we pick this story up in chapter 5, and the scene is set. The, the lake of Gennesaret, which is actually just another name that Luke used for the Sea of Galilee. And we find out that there was a crowd pressing in on Jesus. Imagine yourself in the crowd that day. You are standing in Galilee on the shore of the sea. You can feel the sand between your toes, and you're in a crowd. And this crowd is starting to move forward and you notice that the crowd is pushing you towards one figure in the distance and you recognize that this figure is a man as you get closer and closer. And then you recognize that this is actually a man that you are familiar with. You have seen him before. In Luke chapter four, verse 31, it talks about Jesus and it says, he went to Capernaum, which was in Galilee, and he taught you on the Sabbath and his word possessed authority. And then you remember what we know to be true from Luke chapter 4, verse 35, that this was the man who who, uh, rebuked the unclean spirit out of another man. And you reflect on the amazement of all of the onlookers on that day. And finally, as you look at the man that the crowd is pushing you towards, you remember that word was then starting to get out about this man. Luke 4.37 says, word was getting into every place in the surrounding region. So you find yourself back in the present. The beginning of chapter five. The crowd's beginning to pack in. And this was likely not a small crowd, but it was a mob. It was a, a multitude of people. Josephus, a Jewish historian, estimated that there was over three million people living in Galilee during this time. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine the sun's rays on the back of your neck? Can you imagine the shoving of the people getting towards this one man? Can you imagine all of the people coming to hear him? 
Our text says on this occasion, they came, as, as Luke says, to hear the word of God. The crowd pushing in to hear the word of God. This phrase, the word of God, is used 19, time in the, 19 times in the book of Luke-Acts, which is now separated into Luke and Acts. And every time, without uh, difference, each time this is used, it is used to represent the proclamation of the gospel. And so on this occasion, the God-man himself preaching the word of God. And the crowd pressed in. And as the crowd pressed in, Jesus looks over as the pressure starts to build on him on the edge. He looks over and he sees two boats. Verse 2 says, he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Jesus sees these two boats. He sees the shoreline with the fishermen washing their nets, and these nets needed washing as they were what is known as tremble nets. They were a multi-layered, three-layer net that fish would, would go into and weren't able to turn around and get out of. These were large, overnight fishing nets with a huge capacity in them. And these men were what, working what we know now to be the graveyard shift. They would go fishing overnight and during the day they would ready their ship, they would clean their nets and they'd get ready for the next evening's endeavors. So Jesus sees this and decides it's time to, time to move on from the crowd that is pressing in on him. Verse three, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. Jesus gets into one of the boats. This boat is owned by Simon, and he asks to pull off the shore so that he can distance himself from the crowd so that he can continue to teach them. And because we know that Jesus does nothing by chance and did nothing by chance, we have to ask the question why? Why Simon's boat? Who was Simon? Well, we know from Luke 4, 38 and 39, that Jesus and Simon knew each other. Luke 4, 38, if you can see it on your page there, says, and he, Jesus, arose and left the synagogue and he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and he rebuked the fever and it left her and immediately she rose and began to serve them. So they knew each other. Jesus had already healed Simon's mother-in-law. But the intentionality of Jesus going to, to Simon's boat goes beyond him just knowing him from that one occasion. It goes beyond him, uh, Jesus looking at that boat and saying, it's the closest boat to me, so I'll enter it. Or it goes beyond Jesus saying, that seems like it's the safest boat or the one I should teach on. It goes beyond just thinking it's the safer option. It goes beyond just him saying, it's just by chance. No, Jesus chose Simon's boat because Jesus chose Simon. It had nothing to do with the boat, but everything to do with the man who owned it. Because this Simon goes on to be the apostle Peter. And in Luke 6, Jesus prays all night, and when day comes, he walks out from a long night of prayer to his father, and through the group of disciples, he appoints 12 to be his apostles. And in chapter 6, verse 14, it says, he chose Simon, whom he named Peter. Peter is the preeminent apostle. 
Peter is the spokesperson for the group. Peter was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is the preacher on the day of Pentecost. In Matthew 16, 16, when Jesus asks the the disciples who that people say he is, and some respond by saying John the Baptist, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or just some other prophet, he turns to Peter, and Peter's the one that makes the rock-solid statement of faith that the church forever would build off of. He turns to Peter and says, who do you say that I am. And Peter makes the statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Jesus gets into this boat that is owned by Simon Peter. He directs Simon to to pull out from the land, likely distancing himself so the crowd was a little further so that he could teach them. He then sits down on this floating pulpit and he teaches And so our first point was the multitude, that Jesus, with a crowd surrounding him, sees Simon's boat, calls the future apostle to join him on the boat, floats off to sea, and teaches the people. But some things are caught, not taught, and that is our second point, the miracle. The miracle. Look at chapter five, verse four. And when he had finished speaking, He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Jesus finishes teaching the people. He turns to Simon and tells him to do two things, to put out into the deep and to let his nets down for a catch. To sum it up, Jesus comes to Simon and says, Simon, we're going fishing. And what some of you men are doing right now, you're, you're taking this information and you're storing it in your brain for a, a further moment because you know that at some point this year, you're going to back the truck up into the garage. You're going to hook the hitch up of the old fishing boat. You're going to hitch it on. You're going to go into your tackle box. You're going to prepare your bait and prepare your line and prepare your rod. And your wife's going to come out and she's going to say, honey, what are you doing? It's Saturday. And we have a play date at Josh and Felicia's with the girls and you, thinking you're some sly guy, thinking it's a gotcha moment, you're gonna turn to your wife and say, well, honey, Jesus fished. One, incredibly unwise. We have some great marriage counseling here at the church. Two, totally not the point of the story. Let's move on. You know, when we look at this text, we see that Simon goes into deeper water and he lets his net down. And Simon responds and he responds with a word. He says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Peter recognizes Jesus from this moment that we talked about with the mother-in-law and he calls him Master. But this is not a term of loyalty. This is not a term of lordship on Peter's response looking at Jesus, but it is just a recognition of the authority and leadership of Jesus in that moment. Peter knew in his head who Jesus was, but Peter did not yet know in his heart of who he was standing before. Take note of two things here. Fishing was supposed to be done in the night. We toiled all night, Peter says, and we took nothing. Jesus, we have fished all night 
and have not caught a a single fish. Fishing is hard work and we've worked very hard. And now what you're telling me is you want me to then work hard again to in the middle of the day when the fish can see my net to throw my heavy net over that I just prepared on the shore here ready for the next night to go fishing in the middle of the day? Take note that fishing was to be done in the night, but Jesus asked Simon to throw his nets in the middle of the day. And second, note through this point that Jesus was not a fisherman. He was a carpenter. You know, before I entered ministry, I was in construction. I got a job from my uncle in construction, and I worked in a union in metal framing, drywall, lath, and plaster. I went to college and I focused mostly on construction management, so I recognized that if I wanted to be a manager of a construction site, I might as well get some experience. So I got this job in a union, and let me remind you that outside of the classroom, I had zero experience in construction and zero calluses for that point. And I was assigned the lowest role in the totem pole, the stalker scrapper. I know, it's horrible. It was. Which basically, a stalker scrapper was to to pick up around the site to move a very high, heavy sheet of drywall, about 50 of them, to another spot here just because someone told you to. You break up the occasional fight and you just learn as you go. And as a comparison for you of what had happened in that day, in Peter's mind, this would have been like me with no calluses and no experience as the stalker scrapper walking into the construction site on day one Finding the man with skin that most resembled leather because of years of sun damage, saying, I'm not sure if you've ever met me, but this is my first day. I am a stalker scrapper, and I took one class on this one time. Would, would you actually, instead of what you're doing, have you tried doing it this way? This would be totally out of place for me. I would probably be laughed or kicked off the construction site. But this was not just any ordinary carpenter. This was not just another man on a boat. This was God in the flesh, who is omniscient, meaning he has total knowledge of everything in the world, having total knowledge of where all the fish are, having total knowledge of each and every scale on each and every fish in the sea that day. But Peter responds, but at your word I will let down the nets, just an sentence of obedience to whom he knew was the leader. Look back at chapter five, verse six. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. In obedience to Jesus, they cast out their nets and catch such a large number of fish, so many fish that their overnight biggest net, one they've prepared for a catch like this, were breaking, a miracle. All night, the right conditions, no fish. During the middle of the day, technically the wrong conditions, one cast so many fish that the nets were breaking. So many fish that in verse 7, it says they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats and both boats began to sink. And many ask, why did they signal? Why not just yell out? And most great scholarly theologians say, because they didn't want to scare the fish. 
anyone fishing knows you're not supposed to yell. And so I can just imagine the signaling that day, the guys coming over like, there's a lot and they're dead. And that guy, he just like the net. I mean, they're signaling to get these guys, like they do the old reel and like try to pull them in that way. They need another boat to load their fish up. But even with the other boat, the nets were breaking the fish so heavy, the boats were sinking. And they look over at the man. And they realize that the man that was sitting on that boat was not just a man. This was the Messiah, the Messiah that was promised to come. So we have seen from the first two scenes the multitude of people hearing him. And we just looked at the miracle that took place, the enormous amounts of fish. And we turn to our third scene, the man's confession. The man's confession. Look back down at chapter five, verse eight. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Peter recognizes his sinfulness. Depart from me. I am just a fisherman, and I am a sinful fisherman at that. I have completely missed the mark of perfection. I am not worthy to even be in your presence, Lord. This is the same posture of confession as Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, verse 27, when he says, I am but dust and ashes. The same posture of confession as Job 42, 6, when he says, I despise myself and repent. The same posture of repentance as Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Peter was weak. Peter was humiliated in front of the Lord. Peter was undone. Peter was exactly where God wanted him to be, on his knees before him. But Peter had seen a miracle before. Remember that Jesus healed his mother-in-law. What has changed now? Why does Peter see the Lord now? Why is this miracle any different? Maybe... It's because this is Peter's area of expertise. He knew that what Jesus had just done was impossible. Naturally impossible to catch that many fish in one swoop, especially during the day. But all we know is this, that Peter had known Jesus in his head, but he did not intimately and personally know the Savior. He had overlooked him. Is that true of you tonight? Have you overlooked him? Have you sat in many a pew, heard many great sermons, but have not come to know him? Maybe through this miracle tonight, like Peter, you for the first time are able to see the man behind the miracle. You are seeing beyond just another story in a book. You are seeing beyond just words on a piece of printed paper. But right now, maybe your heart through the regeneration of the Spirit is being made alive, being softened. And for the first time, you look down at your Bible and you say, I never read it there. 
that must have been there the whole time, but I never saw it like he's telling me, and I see it now. How did you miss this for so long? Whether you are 10, 50, or 100 years old, tonight may be the night of salvation for you. Whether you are seen as the morally good kid, or if you have been locked up behind the doors of a prison, tonight may be the night of salvation for you. Whether you are rich, whether you are poor or dirty or clean, educated or uneducated, it does not matter. When the Spirit regenerates your soul, you can see for the first time the Savior, and that may be tonight for you. Because God has overlooked the times of ignorance. And he is declaring that all men everywhere should repent. And according to Isaiah chapter 55 verse 7, you are wicked. And you must forsake your way. You must forsake your unrighteous thoughts. And if you return to the Lord, he will have compassion on you and God will abundantly pardon. And you may ask the question, well, how can I be saved? How can I inherit the kingdom of God? How can I be called a child of God? Well, this one verse right here in front of you explains exactly how. Look back down, Luke chapter five, verse eight. It's all in that one verse. The first step, how can I be saved? The first step is this, to realize your sin. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Peter recognized his unworthiness. Peter recognized this to be true, and it is true, that holiness and sin cannot exist together. And as Peter recognized who Jesus was, he knew this. And maybe you are here tonight, and you too have recognized your unworthiness. But you say, I'm too far gone. You think you are too old. You think you have committed some sin that would forever kick you out of the kingdom of God. You think that your sin was too bad. But friend, an awareness of your sin does not disqualify you from knowing God. An awareness of your sin is a necessary prerequisite to knowing him. Humble people are what God uses. Weak people are who God makes strong in Christ. So the first step is to realize your sin, and the second, and we see it in that verse, is to recognize Christ. Depart from me, Peter said, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He changes his term here, not just from master, not just from leader, but Lord. It was not just seeing his failures, I'm sure as a fisherman, he saw failures daily. But it was seeing that he had fallen short of the glory of God. But it was seeing that he was before holiness, who the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. A recognition of your sin does nothing if not redeemed by the Savior. A recognition of your sin does nothing unless you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. People realize every day 
just how evil they are. But this does not change anything in their life unless they seek him who knew no sin, who was made to be sin for us on our behalf that we may become the righteousness of God. So the step one is to realize your sin. The second step is to recognize Christ. Peter had done both of those things and the third step is to have a repentant attitude. The text says he fell down at Jesus' knees. Peter falling down at the knees of Jesus, a posture of worship, a posture of repentance. A man who was so undone and overcome with his sin that the only place he could go physically was to his knees before the king of the world. We have seen the multitude. We have seen the miracle. We have seen the man's confession. And finally, our last scene, the mission. The mission. Luke 5 verse 10 And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Do not be afraid. Jesus knew of the fear inside of the heart of Simon. He said, do not be afraid. Why would Simon be afraid? He'd be afraid because of the realization that he who can see the bottom of the sea can see the bottom of his heart. And a fear came over him. And a guilt that weighed so much, it drove him to his knees, came over him. But what I need you to hear tonight is that an awareness of guilt should not push you away from God. But an awareness of your guilt should actually have the opposite effect and it should draw you nearer and nearer to the throne of grace where Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, sits. An awareness of your guilt should not push you away, but it should pull you in closer towards him. That is why we should not be afraid. Jesus says, do not fear. Do not be afraid, Simon. And he then gives him a mission. He says, from now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and they followed him. From now on, from now on, there is life change that comes when the spirit enters your life. And Jesus himself is expectant of change. And what comes with regeneration and a saving faith is two things in this narrative. First, it's a mission, to call and to catch others. He tells Peter, no longer will you catch fish. No longer will you catch and kill and sell fish, but you will catch men. And instead of killing them, you will actually give them the one message that can save their life forever. And a second is a counting of the cost. It says they left everything and they followed him, everything. At the high point of their careers, fish breaking nets and sinking boats, the greatest catch and greatest payday of these fishermen's lives, but they walked away and they followed him. What are you not willing to walk away from? 
What are you holding on so tight like my sweet, a 13-month-old daughter holds on to her toast, even if offered something better? Is it money? Give it up. He is worth it. Is it pleasing others to try to appease somebody or to fit into a certain crowd wanting to be accepted? Give it up. He is worth it. Is it your own sinful and fleshly desire? Give it up because he is worth it. Whatever it is, I can just tell you, whatever it is, he is far greater and he is worth leaving it. And so tonight, I hope that you have seen through the four scenes his holiness. He is a good God. He is a loving God who calls people to himself to be saved from himself. And he is just. And part of his justice means that he must punish sin. And Peter, on that day, and I hope you recognize now that sin and holiness cannot coexist. And because he is just, those who are in sin and have not repented, they must be punished. They must be punished. But he is merciful. And he is merciful to those, only those, who trust in Christ. Because the moment you repent, you are now not seen as a sinner to God. But as he looks upon you on the day of judgment, he will actually see the righteousness of Christ. He was our substitute on that cross. But for those who don't repent, only one thing awaits, and it's hell. Eternal separation from God. The weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And as Danny Johnson stood here one year ago, and he said, you could be in hell for eight billion years, and you are just getting started. You are just getting started. It is eternal. Friends, I need you to know that you need tonight to realize your sin, to recognize Christ and to repent of all that dishonors him. Because these miracles are not just about a magnitude of fish, but these miracles are about the magnificent master, the Messiah, the king of the world. And you must be made right with him before the day of judgment, before your day comes. Because just as eternal as hell is, heaven is the same. 